Good morning. How are you? Glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Uh, we're Forest Hill Church, one church, three campuses here at South Park, Ballantyne, and Fort Mill online community. Thank you for joining us today during this time. We really appreciate all of your presence. Um, I want to give you a phrase my daddy taught me. I'm going to use several illustrations from my dad today since it's Father's Day. Um, he's gone on to be with the Lord. I sure look forward to seeing him again, though. Great man of God. Um, he said, David, always remember where God guides, God provides. Great phrase, isn't it? Where God guides, God provides. So say it with me. Where God guides, God provides. Well, let me share with you how God has provided something for us that we weren't looking for. Um, we have three campuses, as you know, South Park, Ballantyne, Fort Mill. We've started a fourth one uh, in Waxhaw. We bought 10 and a half acres on the corner of Kensington and Providence Roads. Really kind of cool piece of property right in New Waxhaw. We're going to start building on it sometime in the next year. But as we looked forward, we knew that we have a no-debt policy here. I think all of you know that. We will not go into debt at all. That's just part of our commitment that we think God guides and God provides. So we knew we couldn't get into the new location for about another year plus. And so we thought, ah, oh, that's too bad. We've got, you know, two to three, 400 Waxhaw people who are so excited about this, but we just got to go at God's pacing and timing. I have a friend who started a church called Impact Church. They meet at Cuthbertson High School. We've been friends for over 20 years. I've mentored him in ministry. And over the last uh, month or so, he has felt a call to go to a church outside of Charlotte. But his biggest concern is to be, well, what can I do for my congregation. I'm a pastor. I care for my people, meeting at Cuthbertson High School. And he came to me over lunch, and he said, I've got an idea. How about if Forest Hill, in its Waxhaw campus planting, absorbs my people, absorbs those people God has given me, and you guys take over the Cuthbertson High School campus and begin your work immediately? Our elders met with their elders. There's a fit uh, in so many different ways. Bottom line, we agreed to do that. I'm going to go preach there next week. Uh, we still don't have everything in place yet. It'll take a while to get all our infrastructure in place, but we think by the 1st of August, uh, we'll have everything fully operational, though they'll be meeting and worshiping every week with some of our people and their people. We'll have everything ready, we think, by August the 1st or so. We fully anticipate within months we'll have four, five, six hundred people there uh, because of their folks and our folks, and it just is a God thing. Let me show you some pictures of Cuthbertson High School. Yeah, uh, this... That, that's the outside of it, and you can see it's a new campus that has just recently been built. The hallway's obviously wide. Um, the auditorium seats 850 people. It has all the audio and video necessary to do our extension multi-campus with the cameras and the videos, etc. And again, uh, they've been meeting there. They're excited about us coming, and I'll be preaching there again next week. Now you can applaud. Isn't that just like the Lord to do something like that that allows us to start Immediately, and by the way, I failed to mention to you, the Cuthbertson High School is two miles from our campus, that, the property that we have purchased. Two miles. So we'll be allowed to do that work and start it. The Waxhaw community is about as excited about us coming, so that really is a God thing. So just want to tell, tell you, too, that after next week, I'm going to begin my summer sabbatical. I get uh, about six weeks off that the elders of the church give me. I'm going to go away. I'm going to plan for sermons in the fall. We've got to do a fundraising, obviously, for the Waxhaw campus. I've got to do a lot of other work I'm going to read. I've got 15 books on my book list I'm going to take and read during that time period. I've also been offered a book deal, and I'm going to be writing some. Uh, that's hopefully going to be completed by the time I come back. You, you need to know that any money I receive from a book deal, I give away. Okay, I just want you to know that. I don't profit 
from this time that you give me to go away, though I hope the book will be used by God for his glory and his glory alone. So I'll be gone, but the other campus pastors will get the chance to preach. It develops them for their future. I'm not getting younger. They're getting you know, a need to learn how to preach, and so it's a win-win for everybody uh, as we work together. So I hope that you will appreciate uh, this summer, and we're going to study the book of Proverbs throughout the summer, beginning today, looking at a major theme in the book of Proverbs called the fear of the Lord. So are you ready to begin? Four people are ready to begin. Okay, that's great. Good. good. No. Are you ready? Can we go now? Okay, good. Let's, let's look at the book of Proverbs together. Real quickly, Proverbs was written by King Solomon somewhere mid-10th century B.C. Uh, in 1 Kings 4, it tells us that Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, uh, some of which are in this book called the book of Proverbs. Uh, in case you don't know your biblical divisions, uh, the first five books in the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Uh, the next section of books are called the historical books. The next section of books are called the wisdom literature. The last section called the prophetic books, Isaiah through Malachi. The wisdom literature is Job through the Song of Solomon's, inclusive of the book of Proverbs. It is all about wisdom, and we're going to look at wisdom today uh, and the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, the fear of the Lord is what begins both knowledge and wisdom. We're going to see that in just a moment as we read two of the Proverbs together. Then I'm going to give you a biblical overview of the fear of the Lord, then look at some of the specific verses in Proverbs that talk about the fear of the Lord. If you're ready, let's get at it. Out of reverence for the reading of the scripture, if you're able, would you please stand? And read with me two Proverbs, Proverbs 1, 7 and Proverbs 9, 10, which talk about wisdom and knowledge being rooted in the fear of the Lord. Read with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Let me also read to you uh, something I read this morning. I have a quiet time most every morning, and I try to read 10, 12, 15 verses from a book of the Bible and then just let it speak to my heart. Today I was in Luke, the 12th chapter, and these words I read, and I thought, I've got to read them as a part of this message. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. I didn't come up with the doctrine of hell, folks. If you've got a problem with it, talk to Jesus, okay? Yes, I tell you, fear him. Two times Jesus talks about the fear of the Lord. It's our subject today. You may be seated. So Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10 says that the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Well, first of all, let's ask this question. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is not cowering before the Lord. It's not being afraid of God. The fear of the Lord is an awesome, holy respect of the God who created all the world. It's just this sense of an awesome reverence before the holy God of the world. Uh, other words that describe the fear of the Lord are holiness. It means being different. Uh, the glory of God. What's glory? The word glory means weight in the original Hebrew language. It means that God is weightier than anything else in the world. God is most important than any other thing in the world. He's heavier than anything else in the world. 
So that gives God the glory when you place him as the prime focus of your worship. So, so that's what the fear of the Lord means, an awesome, holy respect and fear of the Lord. Okay. So what is knowledge then? Knowledge is knowing facts. How do you know facts? It is by looking at the universe, looking at creation. And as you look at creation and how it all fits together, the ebb and flow of the tides, the photosynthesis of the plants, everything fitting together in a perfect design, you see how to know how God put it all together. Creation describes it. And you have two options, folks, as you look at creation. Either you believe that it was formed in a cosmic explosion, birthed out of primordial sludge, and we're here today in random chaos. That's one option. The other option is that there was a big bang that God banged, and that God is the one who created everything, and by its design, it proves a designer. When my dad used to think about the whole idea of all of this world being formed out of chaos and still in chaos, he would use this illustration. He said, to think that this world was created in random chaos by an explosion is like saying an explosion in a printing press would create an unabridged dictionary. Where there is design, there's a designer. Where there's creation, there's a creator. So knowledge is rooted in seeing creation and knowing there's a way that God wants us all to live. So how does knowledge differ from wisdom? Knowledge knows facts as God created it. Wisdom is the practical application of those facts. Huge difference, isn't it? It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to apply it to your life. Knowledge knows it. Wisdom applies it. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's also the beginning of wisdom. To understand there is a God who created everything, an awesome, holy God, we then want to know how he wants us to live. The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, you'll never be wise. And the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. In fact, it contrasts how to live wisely against how to live foolishly. There is the wise man, there is the foolish man contrasted throughout the book of Proverbs. So the beginning of wisdom is understanding, knowing the fear of the Lord. In my humble opinion, I think we in contemporary American Christianity tend to forget about the fear of the Lord. We tend to emphasize God as our good buddy. I mean, LeBron James, God bless him, but after one of the games where he really played well, he said, I just want to thank the man upstairs. He has a name, LeBron. He is the holy God of the universe. But so many of us just call him our buddy, our friend. Grace is what rules. Grace is important. The love of God is absolutely important. But if you forget the holiness of God, grace can become greasy and then gives us permission to sin as we want to sin. We have overemphasized, in my humble opinion, the grace of God and forgotten about his holiness. We've forgotten about the fear of the Lord and all that we know about God must begin with the fear of the Lord. That's what the book of Proverbs is trying to say. There are several illustrations biblically I want to give you now that illustrate the need for the fear of the Lord. The Bible never wants us to forget it. The first story is in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, it's the story of Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of, Mo, of, of Aaron, the high priest before the Lord. In Leviticus 9, Aaron received instructions from God on how to bring 
right kind of sacrifices into God's holy presence. For the Bible teaches that if any sinful human being comes into the holy presence of God, they'll die. And so Aaron understands how to come into God's presence with the specific instructions that God gave Aaron. And he does so in Leviticus 9, and God receives Aaron in his presence. Well, in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I I will be holy is another way of saying the same thing. And before all the people, I will be glorified. I will be weightier than anything else. What was Nadab and Abihu's problem? They came before the Lord in an unauthorized way of worship, in a familiar fire worship. And God did not receive it because he had not instructed them to come in that way, and he killed them. And some of you think that's harsh. It's not harsh if God is holy and can't stand to be in the presence of sin. The fear of the Lord swept over the camp, as it should have. The next story is in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And let me give you the background of this story. In 1 Chronicles 13, the Philistines were fighting the Israelites. They're mortal enemies of one another. And the Israelites, under King David's leadership, thought that if they brought out the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God, remember the Indiana Jones movie? The presence of God, they could fight the enemy and win with the Ark of the Covenant in their presence. Now, see, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the center of the tabernacle when the people went from Egypt to the Promised Land. Around this tent was centered the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested. There lay the very presence of God. He rested on that mercy seat. And oftentimes with the tabernacle, a Shekinah glory of the Lord, that word Shekinah means a cloud of glory, would descend upon the tabernacle and hover around the mercy seat of God in the Ark of the Covenant. And God would become present and worshiped in that place. The same thing happened when David built the temple with Solomon. There was a holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the holy cloud of the Lord would come around it. And God would make himself present in that place. But what God didn't like was David bringing out the Ark of the Covenant as some kind of lucky charm to beat the Philistines. He'll have none of that. God's not here to serve us, folks. We're here to serve God. And so they bring out the Ark of the Covenant, and they lose the battle. And the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines into their area. But but pretty soon, these godless Philistines experience the holy presence of God, too. They start getting cancerous tumors and boils, and they go, get rid of this thing. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant back over the Israelite border in a city called Kiriath-Jerim, and they leave it there. Soon, King David hears that the Ark of the Covenant is at Kiriath-Jerim, so he says to his people, let's bring it back where we can worship the Lord. So they go, and they bring it back, and and they put it on a cart, and and they're bringing it back on an ox cart, and it hits a bump in the road. It starts to tilt over, and Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, one of the guys in the cart, casually touches the Ark of the Covenant, and he dies immediately. And God says the reason he dies is because of the casual approach to his presence that Uzzah undertook. And David, angry at first, then went back and studied the book of the law and found out how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be carried on poles by the Levites, the priests, holy unto the God. That was the way it was supposed to be brought back. Then he brought it back that way, and he learned a valuable lesson. 
casual worship of a holy God is not acceptable to him. And I must wonder sometimes, folks, I really do. Forgive me if I'm stepping on toes. My daddy said also to me, as a preacher, the purpose of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I love you a lot. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I worry sometimes that some, many of you, worship God like Nadab, Abihu, and Uzzah, casually. Let me ask you, do you prepare your hearts before you come to worship? Do you really seek to come into the presence of a holy God? The reason I worry is because when worship begins, we could fire a cannon down the middle and not hit anybody. Ten minutes into the service, the place is filled. And I wonder, Lord, is there ooze of worship going on here? Just, just a casual entering of your presence. You wouldn't treat your boss that way in the work world. The other illustration I want to share with you is from the New Testament. In Acts, the fourth and fifth chapters, Barnabas, the name means encouragement. If you have a friend named Barney, not a purple dinosaur, okay? <laughs> His name means encouragement. Barnabas becomes a Christian and sells a very valuable piece of property on the island of Cyprus and gives it to the early church. And the early church is just amazed at the generosity of this man named Barnabas. Two people in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, who'd become Christians, liked the claim they were receiving because of how much money they had given. But Barnabas's gift was far larger than theirs, and they were jealous of all the acclaim Barnabas was getting. So they decided among themselves to pretend like they gave even a larger gift than Barnabas' gift, but they really hadn't. But everybody thought they'd given a large gift because they told everybody what they had given. And Peter found out they'd lied. They'd been duplicitous before the holy Lord of the universe. He calls them into the assembly and in a worship service basically says first to Ananias, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit. And Ananias died struck down maybe cardiac thrombosis he died he's wheeled out in comes Sapphira his wife same question why have you been duplicitous before the Lord before the Holy Spirit before she can answer she struck dead wheeled out and the text tells us a holy awe reverence fell upon the congregation you think do you think they had any problems raising money that next year for the budget, huh? A holy awe. What, 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 what do they understand? The fear of the Lord. Because God didn't want that forgotten. And when you lie, when you slander, when you are duplicitous, you are not understanding as a follower of Jesus a holy, fearful God. Another example I want to share with you is from Jesus' life. It's in Luke, the ninth chapter. And just so you can stretch your legs, if you're able, out of reading for this scripture, would you stand again, please? Here's another example of the glory, the holiness, the fearfulness of God. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, this is Luke 9, 26 through 28. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Now, first of all, note, Jesus is coming back again. Have I told you that? He's coming back again. He promised over and over again. He will come back and right all wrongs. He will come back and restore this world to the way that God intends it to be. But he says that when I come back, will you be ashamed of me and my words? 
Because if you're ashamed of me and my words, Jesus said, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father and the holy angels. Now, did you note, too, that when he does come back, that he'll come back in his glory, in the Father's glory. And interestingly, the glory of the holy angels, they're all glorious, all holy, all different, all in reverence and all why? They're sinless. There's no sin that's a part of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now let me tell you what happens eight days after Jesus taught this, that some of them wouldn't die before they saw the reverence and the glory of the kingdom of God. Peter, James, and John are with Jesus on the mountaintop, and he's praying. And while he's praying, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, that same cloud of splendor and majesty with probably lightning bolts and refracted colors comes down upon Jesus. Uh, By the way, that's the reason we have smoke here in the beginning of the service. With the refracted lights, we're trying the best we can, albeit woefully inadequate, of what heaven is like for you. We want you to come into worship and have an experience of the colors and magnificence of what we think heaven's going to be like. And Jesus experienced that, and the text tells us in Luke 10 that his clothes turned white as the Shekinah glory of God came upon him. What happened? Jesus is God in human flesh. His Godhead was veiled in the incarnation in his human flesh. So people could look into the face of Jesus as sinful people and still live. God's glory veiled in Jesus. But at this moment, when the Shekinah glory of the Lord comes upon Jesus and he suddenly lights up, his glory is seen in the cloud. Peter, James, and John could still live because Jesus is enshrouded. But God's glory and holiness is now seen in Jesus. And suddenly, from nowhere, step out of eternity into the mountain, two figures from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And they're conversing with Jesus. Wouldn't you love to know what they talked about? Get to heaven, we can check out that DVR. And we'll hear what they talked about. But God then says to Peter, James, and John, as all of this is happening, this is my beloved son. That's so cool. It's the second time the father said those words publicly. The first was at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Parenthesis, real quick, dads. Make sure, above all else, you tell your kids regularly this message. I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. And it's not based on your performance. It's based simply on the fact I just passionately and crazily love you. For my daughter Bethany and my son David and my son Michael, I love you guys. I'm so proud of each one of you, and it's not based on what you've done in the classroom, in the swimming pool, or the basketball court. It's based simply on the fact that I just love you so much, and I'm so proud of you. That's what the Father said about Jesus, and every daddy needs to tell their children that message, that love is not based on performance, but just based on who you are. And then the Father said to Peter, James, and John, Listen to him, not to Moses. Your salvation's not through the great lawgiver. It's not by trying to work harder and harder. 
nor is it through Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, because you're angry at sin and you're just trying harder. No, listen to Jesus. Your salvation is through holiness, recognizing your sinfulness, and then through grace. Listen to him. (laughs) And after the cloud went away and Jesus returned to his human glory, Peter wanted to build booths and stay in the presence of the Father. Isn't that just like us? We have a great spiritual experience. We just want to stay in that experience. And Jesus says, up here, got to go back to work. Got to come down off the mountain. Just like you and me, have a great worship experience. But when we leave the place as our mission field, still got to go to work. So the message there is about the glory of God that's evidenced in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Whether it's Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah, Ananias and Sapphira, the Mount of Transfiguration experience, or it's Isaiah in Isaiah 6 looking into the face of God. And what are his first words? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What the angels are saying. Then he says, I am a man of unclean lips. (laughs) Book of Revelation, the same thing. The angels are crying out all the time. Holy, holy, holy. The fear of the Lord, folks, the awesome power of the Lord needs to be in our lives constantly. We should never forget it. It's the beginning of right living, of all wisdom. So let's look at the book of Proverbs now. Let's look more closely at some of these verses that are in the book of Proverbs that tell us about the fear of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to read them with me. They're about 15 different verses, and I'll comment on each one about what they're trying to teach us. You ready? You still awake? Still awake? Oh, okay. Just want to make sure. Here's the first one. Chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Read it with me. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. What is this saying? First of all, it's a choice to believe in the fear of the Lord. You can either have a casual familiarity with God or you can choose to see his awesome reverence. Also, we see that when people don't choose the fear of the Lord, one of the evidences and outcomes of choosing against the fear of the Lord is what? They will call upon me, but I will not answer unanswered prayer. Perhaps one of the reasons yours and my prayers aren't answered is because we don't hold a high enough regard of the fear of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 5, read it with me. Then you will understand the what? Fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So again, to understand the facts of who God is begins with the fear of the Lord because you want to know this awesome, holy God. And he then will reveal his knowledge to you. Chapter 3, verse 7. Read it with me. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So one thing the fear of the Lord totally combats, wisdom in your own eyes. You know, the bottom line is I'm not very wise. When I compare myself to God, God is God and I'm not God. And most of my problems come when I get those two things confused. God is the one who knows everything. He is total wisdom. And when I fear the Lord, it will make me want to turn away from evil. Because God has no evil that's a part of him. And I choose to live a life that is holy like his. Chapter 8, verse 13, read it with me. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil 
pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. God wants us to hate evil like he hates evil. So if there's anything in this world that you know is evil, you know God hates it, you should hate it too. Moreover, pride and arrogance have no place in an understanding of the fear of the Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 8 looked at all of creation and he cried out, God, when I look at the stars and the handiwork of all creation, and then I think of me, I ask the question, who am I that you would even think twice about me? I pray that prayer all the time. When I look at creation and the splendor and majesty of God, I ask the question, why do you give one ounce of thought to this puny, six-foot-seven-inch, skinny preacher? But yet he does because he loves me. And, And also, did you catch God hates perverted speech? Ananias and Sapphira, he hates it when you gossip. He hates it when you feel bitterness and tear down another person. He hates duplicity in speech especially. The fear of the Lord stops perverted speech. Chapter 10, verse 27, read it with me. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Now, this is a general statement. It's not a specific statement because there are people who have the fear of the Lord who have not experienced a long life for whatever reason. But generally, those who fear the Lord and seek his knowledge then apply that knowledge on how to live their lives. And when you live a life the way the Lord wants you to live it, it generally prolongs your life. When you read the scripture, for example, and see what it says about how to eat right, how to drink water, a lot of it, how to take care of your body, how not to hold bitterness and resentment, which cuts life short. All of those different things, when you learn how God wants you to live, generally, you will live a much longer life. In the area of sexual ethics, I've told you this many times times, but in our society where it's highly sexualized and believes you can sleep with anybody, whomever you want, whenever you want to, God says, Genesis 2.24, in creation, his will is sex only between a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. Now think about how many social ills that kill people would go away if everybody in the world practiced sexuality as God intended. In the AIDS pandemic, for example, this wiped out much of Central Africa, millions upon millions of people. If they would just practice this commitment, think about it. In one generation, most all of AIDS would be eliminated. And still some would remain because of the blood transfusions. But most would go away because God knows how we're supposed to live our lives. And when we have the fear of the Lord, we seek the knowledge of how to live our lives. And generally, we live longer than the wicked whose lives will be cut short. Next one, Proverbs 14, 2. Read it with me. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. The proof you understand the fear of the Lord is obedience. It's obedience. Let me give you an illustration. There was a a private who was greatly gifted in the armed services. His giftedness was recognized. Uh, He worked hard, uh, and he knew about a five-star general that he wanted to work for more than anyone else in the world. The general was gifted, powerful, oversightful, really wanted to work for him. He became a corporal, and the general then noticed him and hired him as his personal driver. Uh, He drove him everywhere, and through that time, they became good friends, spending a lot of time with one another in the Jeep. One time they're driving along in a very dangerous area and they hit a landmine. The five-star general saves the corporal's life, nurtures him back to health, 
And they continue now in an even deeper friendship. Yet the corporal, in describing their relationship, goes from the time when he first enlisted to knowing a lot about this general to then knowing him more personally to then the fact he knew him as his savior. But then he talks about how whenever he was in the presence of the general and every day thereafter, knowing about him, knowing him, then knowing him as savior, he could not ever be in his presence without saluting and then obeying any command the general gave him. He had a love for the general, but he also always held him in a high, holy respect. Much like the Lord's Prayer. How does it begin, folks? Our Father who art in heaven. What? Holy, hallowed be your name. So what's Jesus teaching us how to pray is remember God's your daddy. God's your father. There's close, intimate, personal relationship there. But holy, different is his name. He's in heaven. We're not. So like the corporal, there's the balance between good friend but also holy respect. And whenever there is that fear of the general, fear of the Lord, there's always uprightness. The proof you know the fear of the Lord is your desire to obey whatever he tells you to do. Chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. Read this with me. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Several things here. First of all, when you have the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence or a firm foundation. What does that mean? It means you don't have to fear anything. You don't have to be anxious about anything. There's the foundation of the fear of the Lord in your life. You recognize God is God and he's in control of everything, especially my life. First, first Peter 5, 17, he says, cast all your cares upon the Lord for he cares for you. That word cast is like a fisherman casting a line into the water ferociously. It's like a quarterback casting the touchdown pass into the end zone. It's like a pitcher casting a 95-mile-an-hour fastball down the center of the plate. It is a furious casting aside of all of your cares upon his shoulders because they're broader than yours. Because you know he's God and you have a healthy fear of him and you know if you were created by him and he loves you, he'll take care of the worry. So there is a confidence or a foundation in the fear of the Lord. Also, there is a fountain of life in the fear of the Lord. There's a foundation and a fountain Jesus said, if anybody will drink of my fountain, of my living water, they'll have eternal life, John 7. And you escape the snares of eternal death. You never are afraid of death. Why be afraid of death? Paul said, where's your sting, death? You know, what is death except an entrance to life? I die here, take off this body, get a little creaky, isn't it? And then put on a new eternal body that's perfect in every way. Who wouldn't want that? So you escape the snares of death by understanding the fear of the Lord. And don't miss this one, dads. It's in here too. And his children will have a refuge. Dads, I want to challenge each one of you who stood up with me. Have you taught your children about the fear of the Lord? It is imperative you do so. Don't you give to your children a mere familiarity with God. Teach them about the fear of the Lord, that he is your father and your friend and also the holy one of the universe. 
Here's the next one, 1516. Read it with me. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. <laughs> What's he saying on this one? It's so cool. You ready for this one? It's better to have the fear of the Lord with just a little bit of money than to have a lot of money without the fear of the Lord. Because when you've got a lot of money and don't have the fear of the Lord, what happens? You constantly worry about losing it. You're always worrying about thieves stealing it, rust or moths eating it away, or stock markets crashing. And Solomon's just saying it's better not to have a whole lot, but to totally depend on God to supply your every need than to constantly worry about something that you've got getting stolen from you. Wise words, the fear of the Lord causes that to cease. 1533, read this one with me. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. How many of you want to be lifted up by God? Yeah, I want that too. Let me give you a clue. Every great blessing I've ever had in my life has been a surprise. Every single one of them. Marilyn, the kids, every single one of them. This call here, every blessing. Cuthbertson High School, every blessing has always been a surprise that God's brought to me. I didn't seek it. And here Solomon says, the fear of the Lord teaches you wisdom, how to live life, but it comes with humility that then brings the honor. James, the fourth chapter, says the same thing. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord will lift you up. Here's what I've learned about that verse. I've got two choices. I can either choose to humble myself, or if I don't do that, the Lord will humble me. Which one would you rather have happen? I can assure you, choose number one. And when you humble yourself before the Lord, and you realize I am nothing, he's everything. He's the awesome God of the universe, I'm not. When you choose to believe that, he'll honor you. He'll lift you up. He'll bring blessings to you like never before. But it's rooted in the fear of the Lord. 16.6, read it with me. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by what, folks? The fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. What is that saying? It's saying God's love is what forgives you, but don't forget God's fear is what allows you to repent. God is holy. We're not. The chasm is huge. God comes to us in Jesus, lives the perfect life we can never live for ourselves, impossible. He dies on the cross and gives us all of our sins upon himself to give us our forgiveness that he alone can give. He takes our awful sinfulness upon himself, something he didn't deserve, and gives us his righteousness and forgiveness that we don't deserve, and we receive it by grace through faith only because of love. But then Solomon says, don't forget about the fear of the Lord with that love. For love atones for sin, but the fear of the Lord is what causes you to repent from your sins. We've got too many Christians who've received God's forgiveness and their life changes never occurred. There needs to be repentance. Let me give you the best definition of repentance I've ever heard. Stop it. Stop doing the things that break the heart of God. If you've received his grace and forgiveness, remember the fear of the Lord, which allows you to turn away from sin. 1923, read it with me. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied and will not be visited by harm. General statement, those who have the fear of the Lord won't be visited by harm, and they'll also be satisfied. 
will be content. Won't need more. So many of us, myself included, just think if I have just a little bit more, then I'll be happy. It's a lie. The fear of the Lord satisfies because we know God is enough for every day of our lives. 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. Restatement, humble yourselves before the Lord. Reject pride and watch him then lift you up. 23, 17, and 18, let not your heart envy sinners, read it with me, but continue in the fear of the Lord, how often? All the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Some of you have Jeremiah 29, 11 on your coffee cups, great promise, you have a future and a hope. Jeremiah stole it from Solomon. He stole it from Solomon. How many of you want a future and a hope? Well, trust in the Lord and fear him. The Bible promises that the fear of the Lord every day of your life will lead to a future and a hope for you. And also, don't let your heart envy sinners. What's that saying? Well, first of all, a study's been done. How many of you have a Twitter account or read Twitter? I mean, raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. Now, raise it, raise it high, okay? If you do Twitter, the number one emotion that comes about when people read Twitter is envy. Now, you think you're being cool keeping up with your friends, but what's really going on is you read about all their successes, and nobody ever tells about their troubles on Twitter. They only tell about how they're being blessed. It creates envy. Why am I not getting that, Lord? Why don't you give that to me? If you have the fear of the Lord, though, there's no envy. Why? Because you're celebrating that God's dealing with so-and-so over here the way he wants to deal with him or her, and he's dealing with him or her over here the way he wants to deal with him or her. That's God's deal. He blesses as he wills. I'm content. But also it says, don't envy sinners. How many of you have ever prayed this prayer? God, I don't get why blankety-blank person who's evil in your sight keeps getting blessed by you. I don't get that. How many of you ever felt that? Raise your hand. The rest of you, raise your hand. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Nose getting longer. All of us have felt that. Why do sinners prosper? And here Solomon says, trust in the fear of the Lord. He'll deal with sinners one day. One day, trust him. And finally, chapter 31, 30, read it with me. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I just want to make sure all you ladies feel included on Father's Day. Here's what Solomon's saying. You gals, you have a real enemy out there, and he's trying to convince you that your identity is outward. And it's found mostly by charm and beauty. It's defined by Madison Avenue that tells you this is what your figure's got to be. These are the clothes you've got to wear to be charming and beautiful. But don't let that define you. Let the fear of the Lord define you. For that's an inner quality. It's a quality of the heart. God alone defines beauty. And it doesn't matter whether you're a little larger or a little skinnier. When you get to heaven, God's going to look at you in Christ and go, hubba, hubba, hubba. You are one good-looking girl because the fear of the Lord defines you, not outward charm and the world's definition of beauty, which is far from the Lord's. Okay, i got to stop. <laughs> but one more quick thought. 2 Corinthians 6.16. God's glory now lives in us. What agreement has the temple of the Lord with idols? 
for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here's what I want to leave you with, folks, is the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of the God, his beautiful holiness and his splendor, his majesty and power does not exist in the tabernacle anymore or in the temple anymore or on the Mount of Transfiguration anymore. Where does that glory and power live for those of us who love Jesus? Where? Where? In our hearts. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. And if we've truly experienced the awesome fearfulness of God within us, then we should live in a way that reflects His glory. To Him be the glory forever and ever.